0: Lock and roll, the guys from Kiss have arrived. They snuck in the back door. <laughs> you spend your whole
1: life doing the first few albums, and then suddenly everybody needs your attention. Erica M. Thank you. The invention of the VJ. A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode, Christopher Ward. thanks you very much for watching today. I want to remind you to catch City Limits. We'll have an all-cover show on Limits coming up at twelve. There was a, there was actually a moment in time which I can describe precisely when I knew. We had a hit record, and I knew that it would be okay for me to leave. So we got a couple of videos back-to-back for you. I'll be loving you forever, and you've got it. The right stuff from RSVP. This is Erica M's Reinvention, Reinvention of the, of the VJ. VJ. Now, here's Erica M.
0: Hi there. I'm Erica M, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Reinvention of the VJ. I'm so excited for today's conversation. My guest is the original VJ. No hyperbole, no exaggeration. I mean, he was the VJ even before there was anything called Much Music. He also literally wrote the book on Much Music. Seriously, if you're interested in the history of Much Music, his book Is This Live is a must read. We'll talk about it. Speaking of writing, he's also a novelist and a prolific and highly respected songwriter. Plus, Mike Myers is his BFF. So that's kind of cool. So now you know why I'm so excited to chat with today's guest, Christopher Ward. Now, before we jump in our interview, if this is your first time tuning into my podcast, let me give you a, just a bit of background. Reinvention of the VJ is basically my passion project. The premise is simple, up, and, up close and personal conversations with uh, talented and much loved personalities on air from much music that you may have grown up watching. While our personalities and approaches were often very different, there is one thing that we do all have in common. Each of us played a small part in Canada's most influential pop culture platform. And then we left. At different times for different reasons, each of us set off on our own next adventures. And it's that story of what happens after much, the reinvention, the resilience, the creativity, struggles, and of course, the perspective. That's what intrigues me. And you know what's really important about the show? You, yes, you who's listening right now. I'm making this show for you for a couple of reasons. Okay, first, it's gonna be a trip down memory lane, but I'm also hoping that you listen through the lens of gleaning some interesting tidbits or insights into what it takes to, for you to get the life that you want to reinvent. I know a lot of us are going through that right now or dealing with tough times. How do you get through those? Maybe even redefine what success is. Hopefully, you'll find ideas that will inspire you to look at your life just a little bit differently. By the way, at the end of the show, I'm going to tell you how you can be part of this podcast. And now it's time to introduce my multi-talented, understated friend on reinvention of the VJ. Please welcome Christopher Ward. Christopher, this is E-squared. so awesome. How are you? <laughs> I'm I'm so happy to talk to you. And it's it's funny because during our time at Much, we we never really hung out, but it was after Much ended that we reconnected and you were the giver of all my baby clothes. You and your wife gave me your daughter Rachel's clothes for my daughter Jessie to wear for years.
1: Well, I'm awfully glad to hear that. (laughs) Yeah, I I think of us as really good friends and that's the first and most important thing.
0: Yeah, Um, and I've got to, I'm going to admit something. Part of the reason that I'm doing this podcast is because of the book you wrote, Is This Live? And Ah. yeah, because... I don't know if I told you this, but when I read it, I, I literally was crying. I, I get sort of choked up thinking about it. It was mm. kind of like, oh, Christopher, I'm getting all choked up. Ah, it was kind of like my biography. Like it it struck me how there's you and just a few people who live through such a, a, a huge time in my life and a critical, cultural time in Canada. I mean, it was, Mm. it just really struck my heart. What was that experience like for you, hearing everyone's story because you lived it yourself?
1: Well, going back to write the book was a fantastic experience. I mean, first and foremost, just reconnecting with all these people that I really cared about. And as you say, people that I shared a common experience with. you know, we did go through a lot together. And I think a lot of us, we didn't really talk about it at the time because it was just it was just going so fast. It was just like being on the express train the whole time. And you never had time to kind of look out the window and see what, was, what you were actually going past, um, which is fine because, you know, there's always time to reflect and recollect. And that's what that book was. Um, yeah, I guess the book did reveal things to the writer as a book will about yourself and the story that you've told. And um, and I think it also told me what much music represented culturally in Canada, something else you just referred to. Um, again, I didn't think about that at the time, but I realized how many artists we gave an exposure to, an incredibly important one, and whose careers exploded overnight. I mean, the number of artists who said to me, One day I was kind of slogging it out in the clubs and the next day I couldn't go to the grocery store without being mobbed. I mean, it was just, it was nuts. And um, that was sort of a hint as to how much of an effect we had on, on the music scene in Canada at the time.
0: You said that it revealed something about the writer yourself. What did going through this
1: process reveal about you to you? Well, Those of these things, they're hard to put into words, I think. Um, It was an affirmation of some things. I looked back, and although there were lots of embarrassing moments, things I looked at and wished, oh, man, I'd love to have a redo on that one. Um, I still thought, no, it affirmed that I utilized some of my greatest skills in the moment, which are, you know, curiosity and creativity and just... uh, approaching each day like it's a fresh one. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. let's face it, it's like being a relief pitcher who gets his ass handed to him in the ninth inning of a game in which he blows up a lead. You you know, you do a bad interview and that's how you feel, right? <clears throat> and then the next day you come in, you got to start over. So we did.
0: What about when you spoke to all the different VJs or on air personalities, were there any commonalities that, each of us told you perhaps in different words, but similar emotions or fears or, you know, things that we were proud of or stuff that we had dealt with through interviews, anything that you found like a common theme between all of us?
1: Through most of us, people's reflection was that this had been the time of their lives. They didn't necessarily know it at the time, Mm -hmm. but in reflection, they saw that it was. And um, that's how it struck me as well.
0: When you were putting together the book, as one does when one writes a book, there usually is a theme, there's a through line that goes through the book. So of course, this is a chronology of what happened through the years of much, but I wonder, was there an actual sort of storyline or something thematic that you ended up with some sort of a thesis at the end. And I I know you said that about the musicians, but the musicians part of the book was actually quite a small piece of it at the end of the book.
1: You're asking me tough questions today. This isn't fair. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think maybe, and this is another affirmation if you like, and I I had come uh, before being an on-air person uh, from doing Second City, uh, working in the uh, Second City Touring Company. And uh, the skills that I developed there proved to be probably the most useful set of skills that I was able to bring to bear in my job as a VJ. Because I'm kind of a buttoned down person in many, many ways. I like to have things ordered you know me, I would research interviews like crazy because I just had to feel confident that I was on stable ground with you know, these amazing artists that came in the door every single day. And um, so to accommodate to the randomness of much music, just the wild hair up the ass kind of quality that much music represented, um, you had to give yourself over to the moment. You had to just walk up to the edge and go, well, I think I can fly, and off you went. And you end up, once you've had a few successes doing that and things work out okay and you're still alive the next day to tell the tale and you haven't been fired, you know, you gain a little more kind of confidence in that approach. Mm -hmm. But that's not how television is normally made. Um, It's not made seat of the pants style. It's not just wacky, you know, your boss says do what you want kind of, you know, job. It's not like that but this was, as you well know. And I think we all grew from that. And I think the audience benefited from that as well because they kind of went on the adventure with us. It's like going to an improv show where you know the people are gonna fall on their face and that's your favorite part of the show. The question is, how are they gonna get up and do it again? And that's that's the entertaining part of it. Actually, that is, that makes so much sense to me because I
0: know that having been on much music, if there's something that it taught me was that I can handle anything because I also understand that people forgive you when you make a mistake, if you can keep going. Yeah. And that was, that's a, that's a great secret to have in your back pocket because other people get flustered or they feel badly about themselves. And I'm like, fuck it. Let's just keep on going. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I think it served me really well.
1: Well, I would venture that you, more than anyone who worked there, both benefited from that ability to look upon it that way, but also were kind of forced to because of the rough ride you were given when you first got that gig. I mean, I look back and I just think, I don't know how the hell, I don't think I could have survived that kind of treatment that you received. You've talked about this before, we talked about it in the book. Um, and uh, I mean it's a tribute to your incredible durability and belief in yourself, you know things that you're able to bring obviously into the work that you do now.
0: Do you think that that was a a, qual- a personality type that was hired at much this this sort of indelible I am who I am? type person,
1: in some ways, unmoldable. (laughs) Well, I think there was a kind of an iconoclastic quality to the people that were hired there. And let's remember who did the hiring. For the most part, it was the late John Martin. And John, you know, I mean, we all know his story. Well, maybe people don't know his story, but he was kind of like an absentee landlord in some respects. He would just I think I even said it in the in the, the, um, the credit at the beginning of the book, I said, you know, here, this book's for John, who would wind us up and let us go. And he did. He kind of just, it was beautiful casting. And that's something that Moses, I think, was a master of as well, was looking at his on-air people as a cast. Um, but John had that ability to really zero in on people who would just get up and do it by themselves, who didn't need somebody to say, well, now here's what I want you to do, who be, I mean, it wasn't like we had somebody sitting at the end of every day or every week, watching back air checks with us going, now I think you could have handled this one a little bit differently. It's like, no, that never happened. Nobody ever said anything ever to us about our performance on national television. It was ridiculous.
0: I'm on the floor laughing here because if, People have no idea the craziness, the fact that we were given a crew, a camera, a microphone, and uh, for me anyway, four hours of live TV, unscripted, say and do whatever you want. Like, that's insane, That's, that's that's crazy, that's actually not right. Because bad shit could have really happened. It did, actually. It did. And it
1: it did. Yeah, it did. (laughs) Well, I I mean, I I remember when when John went to hire me for the all-night video show that, that came before much called City Limits. I actually wasn't sure I wanted the gig because I had just left the Second City Touring Company and I had every plan to just rededicate myself to writing music, which was my passion in life, as you know. And so I was about to say no. And a couple of my friends said, are you out of your fucking mind? You will take this gig. But what were you will offered? Go back to him. What was it that you were offered? Well, I'll tell you what. He, I'll, well, I'll tell you. He, it was offered in two stages. Um, John came to see me do my last show at Second City, and at that show, I received an Elvis bust, a pie in the face, and an invitation from John Martin, which went uh, kind of my office uh, on Monday. I got something for you which as you know from John, was, that was loquacious, right? So um, I went to his office on Monday and he's like, well, yeah, we're doing this thing. It's an only video show and blah, you know, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm really w- working on my music now. And he looks at me like, he gives me that really look. And, and you know, he says, well, you need the money, don't you? Like, well, yeah. He says, and you can do anything you want. So that was it. That was like the ultimate invitation to create on television.
0: So it, so he gave you the key to city limits, but was, yes. there, was there a mandate? Was there, is it just go and do it? Or like, was there any direction? Was there any sort of format? <laughs> Anything? Hello? No. no.
1: Nothing. Nothing. Well, we, well, we had a library and there were some videos in it. This was in, you know, the spring of 1983. So yeah, fall of 83. There weren't weren't too many videos. So we kind of just played what we wanted. I actually invented our first format and it was because it just seemed necessary because I had worked in radio when I was going to college I was going to Trent University in Peterborough, and I was working at CKBT, the CHUM station there. So I knew what a format was. And I knew that rather than being a hindrance and rather than it being something that you're forced and confined by, it in fact freed you up because it made sure that the best loved videos of the moment were all going to get a reasonable amount of play and that you provided opportunity to stuff that was on its way up in particular, Canadian artists. So that well, you also were crazy. giving it structure.
0: And within yeah. the structure, you can create like a song. Stru- you know, every song has structure. Ooh, nicely done. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's true, though, because otherwise, if there's so much creativity and there's n- no boundaries, then it's really hard to create something. So you built a format where, which was what? There was a certain number of times you would play certain
1: videos or what was- Kind of, yeah. It was like, it was just a basic ABC format and the ones in the A list were the ones that got played the most. So okay. if it's like, you know, Beat It or Rebel Yell or, you know, Sweet Dreams or whatever were the big videos of the moment, those would those would be maximum airplay and then you'd work your way down from there.
0: So- Pretty basic. Was the, was the uh, strategy from John Martin's perspective, to start City Limits with an eye to Much Music, or was Much Music not even a glint in his eye yet?
1: Well, Much was very much a glint in Moses Nymer's eye, and a whole bunch of other people, uh, including John, and they wanted to create a prototype for Much Music that they could take to the CRTC when it was time for the, you know, handing out of a music license. And I think it was a major part of why they got the license, because they could, in effect, say to the CRTC, unlike some of their very sort of um, heavily funded competition, they could go, look, we're already doing it. Right. And so whatever it was,
0: you and I worked in the same office at that time at 99 Queen Street East I work during mm-hmm. the day, <laughs> you work during the night <laughs> doing the shows. If I remember correctly, is the 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 crew at that time, so that would have been Anne, Michael, Simon, and Morgan, Sherry, were they all part of was that your crew, the overnight city limits crew?
1: Yeah, and the last three that you mentioned, um, Morgan, Simon, and Sherry, they were all volunteers from the centennial college broadcast program yes we all started the same day you Mm -hmm. know on the they just didn't get paid
0: but they did eventually (laughs) eventually i barely got paid eventually
1: yes eventually um and eventually came fairly quickly actually mercifully because um when much came it was like they were sort of cast from well we need some producers it's like well who could we get really cheap who kind of know what they're doing already (laughs) So these kids at age twenty one and twenty two suddenly became the much music producers. And although you know Michael Hayden and Ann Howard were the sort of supervising producers, they had a lot of other responsibilities. Michael's responsibilities encompassed the look of the network, a huge, you know, I think, uh, not unrecorded contribution, but one that's not acknowledged very often. Mm-hmm. So you were
0: building the what would become much music. Can you describe to me that that day that you and JD jumped through that piece of paper and it became officially Much Music?
1: Well, it was done in typical City TV Much style. They just had this absolute, wacky, wild, totally out of control party going on in the studio. What better atmosphere to try to do a television show where you have to be able to take cues and you know, communicate with floor directors and you know, responsibly hit your moments on camera and interview a whole bunch of you know, artists who were half plastered for the most part. I mean, you know, perfect setting, right? Yeah. And then JD and I were, for the longest time, standing behind this great huge green screen sheet Going okay, you know, yeah okay, y'all done yeah you go for okay here we go ready and then they cut a little slit in the green screen because I think they were afraid that we would be, <laughs> wouldn't be able to get out it would look like we were shadow boxing back there with you know the thing coming out um, so we kind of dove through the thing and it was you know just it was a little disorienting to be honest with you I'm kind of I'm claustrophobic so I wasn't really having a good time behind the screen <laughs> sorry
0: yeah. That was such a crazy time. It was, well, it was amazing being there at that moment because it really signaled a new era in the music business and a new era in a new type of television was was being built really, or invented or created. What I interviewed uh, in the last little while for this podcast, I've spoken to George Strombolopoulos, uh, lots of people, but um, Rick Campanelli, Uh, Bill Wilichka, amongst many others. And each of them at some point sort of bow down to you and to JD, to Mike Williams, Uh a little bit to me. Of course I'm hosting, they have to. Um, And when they talk about, (laughs) they always say that you were the trailblazers that, and when you think about it, there was, you didn't have anyone that you could look to for specifically the job of a VJ in a, in a crazy busy office on live TV for four hours a day. So where did you get your inspiration to do the things that you did? How did you, what did you base your job description on?
1: Well, um, when we started, there were only two of us. There was JD, John Roberts and myself And we, uh, they hadn't hired Mike yet, and they hadn't hired you yet. And uh, yeah, I mean, we did seven days a week for, I think it was a couple of months. Weirdly, I don't ever remember feeling tired or thinking this is ridiculous. It was just like, woohoo, we're going back to work again today. But you gotta remember, and I know you know this, working with J.D. Roberts is working with the ultimate consummate professional. And for those of you who don't know him in his current incarnation, he is the White House correspondent for Fox News. So you can see him. He's always in the front row. He's got a little notebook. He's got the silver hair. And he always asks the pointed question. I mean, this guy is the definition of pro. I mean, I was just like the wild-eyed younger brother compared to him in terms of having his gig together. And remember, he'd been working on the show The New Music for what, three or four years before much was launched. So, you know, like working with him always made you feel like, okay, this isn't gonna fall apart because J.D. Roberts is across the room. So, I mean, in many ways, I modeled after him.
0: Interesting, because he was, as you know, my mentor. And the one thing he taught me, mm-hmm. always do your research, Yeah, always do your work. He wasn't about fun. Although, you know, kind of looked like a party dude because he would do a lot of rock stuff. But he was all about do the work. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: no, J.D. was a very serious guy. Um, and he knew everything. I mean, he knew how to run a camera. He knew how to edit. I mean, he literally could have been a one-man network, I think. Um, and yeah, I mean, he wasn't going to be as wacky as some of us. But that that, I think, made for a better balance.
0: So we all had to conduct countless live interviews amidst chaos. Yeah. What do you think makes a memorable interview?
1: Uh, I think when you make a connection with an artist, and it's gotta be a two-way street, you have to provide the right environment you have to ask the right questions in the right sequence. Mm. And the artist has to be open to the idea of making a connection with their audience through you. So those are to me kind of the building blocks of them. There's a lot of ways to get there. Um, my way, I guess JD's way, and, and eventually certainly your way was that, you know, you research like crazy and you know, as much as you possibly can about that artist every time you step into the ring or else you're going to get, you know, you're going to get flattened because a lot of artists have seen it all and they got no time for somebody who's not prepared as we saw in certain circumstances with certain unnamed individuals.
0: (laughs) You you were about to do it. I saw you. (laughs) (laughs) No,
1: no, I wouldn't do that. Um, So and then I think you you have to draw something out of them that just kind of feels like it's happening for the first time without falling into that trap of trying to ask the trick question that no one has ever asked before. Um, but it is like anything else, it's about connection. And you really have to be extremely tuned in. Like I, I looked at some of the interviewers that I admired the most growing up and they were people who it was, effortless, artless, almost like Dick Cavett, you know, he would have all these rock stars on and stuff as well as like literary figures and political people and all this. And he just kind of, you know, look like your cool uncle sitting there in his, you know, corduroy pants, just asking whatever came to mind. Kind of like Del (laughs) 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 Valore. Well, hadn't thought of that. Um, but he kind of uh, rode the wave of an interview. You know how an interview like, quickly develops its own momentum? Like if you interview the Red Hot Chili Peppers, it's gonna be a different set of waves than if you're you know, interviewing Janet Jackson. And um, I did both. So, you, you know, uh, you, you gotta ride it. You gotta be in the moment for sure. So can you ever be over-researched? Does it get in the way? If you let it, only if you let it, only if you um, don't trust yourself and don't remain open to the artist and feel like you're just gonna do this recitation of facts, all these things that you've learned or researched, that makes for drabness. And you know, I'm sure I occasionally fell into that, uh, that situation.
0: So I have invited people who listen to this podcast to ask questions. So I oh. have one for you. Cool. It's all about the audience, which is what we learned at Much, right? It was all about the audience. Mm-hmm. And so this show, yeah. hopefully, I want the audience, I want our listeners to be a part of it. So we have a question here from Louis Pelletier, or Pelletier, and he asked this uh, on Twitter. He wrote, what are Christopher's top three interviews and why?
1: Wow. Well, um, there's a lot. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's um, it's impossible not to mention the George Harrison interview because you know when a Beatle walked in for an hour of live television, and these were gods in my world, and in many others' peoples, obviously. Um, there was it was incomparable as an experience and as a feeling. It's like I remember um, one of our directors, Sylvie, said. When he walked in the room, it became a cathedral. And I thought that was a very cool way of looking at it. Um, You know, say don't meet your heroes because they'll disappoint you. But that did not happen in this case. He was as gracious and kind. And he also, maybe because he wasn't interviewed as much as the others, he was in the moment with you. He listened to the questions really, really carefully. He was very patient. He gave some very spontaneous answers, including one, which has now gone viral. It's been shown like there's two and a half million YouTube views of this one excerpt from the interview. Well, what had happened was that the week before I'd seen this story in the news about McCartney doing an album of songs that he did not write, including songs by John Lennon, like Imagine and Beautiful Boy and so on. And so I thought, oh, I'll just mention that to George and see if he's heard about it. And I told him that and he went, Paul? Oh, well, he doesn't have any good ones of his own then. <laughs> and I was wow. like, and I was, and I was kind of like, you know, gobsmacked for the moment. I went, "Wow, well, I guess we have that on tape now, <laughs> right? And he looked at me and he went, well, it's true. You know, it, it was just that classic understated Beatle thing, but you can see that, that moment for all its glory. Okay, so well, that's a, one of them.
0: Other... All right, you yeah, got, we have two them.
1: more. I'm going to tell you about one that's obscure, if I may. You may. This was, this was one that I did. was one of the very last interviews I did at Much in the year 1989. Um, and it was just towards the end of my tenure there. And I did it with one of the greatest songwriters who's ever lived, a man named Willie Dixon. Willie Dixon was really the kind of the grandfather of the Chicago blues scene. He produced Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. Famously, he produced Wolf, who was uh, illiterate. And when he had to sing his songs, Willie Dixon would whisper the lyrics in his ear. But Willie also wrote all of these great blues songs like "Backdoor Man, I Just Want to Make Love With You, Seventh Son, Little Red Rooster, all these songs that people like The Doors and The Rolling Stones and all these people did. And famously... He wrote a song called "You Need Love," better known as "Whole Lot of Love." Wow. Except that the aforementioned band did not credit Willie Dixon with it ever, and so eventually uh, a court case was averted, and they reached out a court settlement in 1985. I think. Talk about Led Zeppelin, by the way, for those who haven't got on. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Willie Dixon was a hero to me, and, and we went to his place in, in Glendale, California, and it was the middle of the summer, and you know we came up to the door, and there was a screen door, and the door was open, and we could see his gigantic legs on this little thing, and, and he gets up, he sort of lumbers to his feet, and he was just a giant of a man, and so sweet and so gentle. And so he patiently went through this whole thing with me, and I asked like a million questions, because I had a million questions, and he didn't tell me to stop, and there was nobody else there to tell me that I had to quit. And finally, at the end, I said, because he had a piano in the room, I said, would you just play a little bit for us, you know, and I'll get my camera and shoot. He's like, oh, sure. So he goes to the door and he calls his grandson in, who's um, playing touch football on the lawn. And the two of them move this piano so that we can shoot it. And they proceed to sit down and do a duet of Seventh Son, which was one of Willie's songs. And it was just, I kind of still can't believe that I was there for that moment and capture that, and he he died just a couple of years after that. Um, but that oh. one was privately, personally, that was a huge, huge interview for me.
0: Yeah, one of the definitely one of the perks of the job to be able to be in the presence and have deep conversations with people who mean something to you. Who's your third?
1: Ah, uh, let me see, Tina Turner. nobody walked into that room and exuded more pure raw star power than tina turner she walked in the room and she smiled and the sun came out it was just unbelievably powerful her presence and she did it with such grace she was like royalty when she walked in there she was at the top of her game career wise. And, but she'd been through so much. I mean, if you've read her autobiography, then you know, or if you know her story, I mean, just, just horrific stories of her time with her late husband, Ike Turner, but um, she triumphed and it's like she carried that triumph around with her everywhere. And she shared it with you. and She shared it with the people who loved her and um I think it was that more than the actual content of the interview. Oh, I'll tell you one other thing about the, the crew who normally were pretty blase about having rocks in the room asked specifically if they could get their photograph taken with Tina Turner. And so I asked her and she said, yeah, sure. So they instantly immediately assembled. So you've got like 20 people all standing shoulder to shoulder, you know, and Tina's sitting in the front of all of them with a smile as big as they like all outdoors. And that photograph stayed framed in the crew area for years. I interviewed her. Yeah.
0: uh, And I remember asking her. How was it? She was uh, amazing. And she, to me, embodies feminism. So I was really excited to talk to her. And I asked her, I don't remember much. You know that you and I have talked about this, that I... I don't have a lot of <laughs> <laughs> memories of my specific interviews with people because I was so in the moment. Anyway, with her, right. I remembered this question, which is, why is it that strong women are attracted to bad men? Ooh! All I remember is her looking at me like, that's a really hard thing to answer. I think she might've even said that. And I kind of felt bad because I didn't want to bring up, you know, old wounds, but I do think that it's a thing. Where amazing women are attracted to the bad boy. So, why? Um, anyway, you have to go and find it on YouTube or something
1: to see what she says as the answer. But she, I love it. Great her. question. Fantastic question. Um, yeah. I don't know that it's one that a man should ask, but.
0: You're, you're always very elegant and kind and gracious, as far as Thank I know. You. I mean, you, you could be a total bastard around other people, but to me, you're like that. Okay. On that note, let's talk humor. <laughs> let's talk humor, Christopher. You, uh, you're you funny um, and, and yet understated. How would you describe your sense of humor?
1: Absurd.
0: <laughs> That's it. I need more. I need more yeah. because I actually have this, I, I sometimes don't understand comedy. I don't know how mm-hmm. to, like, why did I laugh? But then I go, why did that make me laugh? But because you've st- you know, studied Second City and you are known for being funny and you do funny skits and you're, that's part of what makes Christopher Ward is your humor. Help me understand what makes you funny or how you do funny.
1: Well, I, I think a sense of humor is as unique as your fingerprint or your DNA I mean, you could say someone is similar to someone else, or they got it from their parents or whatever, but ultimately, it, it it goes a long way towards defining who each of us are, what we think is funny, and what we do that, you know, is comedic by its nature. Um, when I say absurd, I mean, it, it's partly the era that I grew up in, in the first comedy that really interested me was, you know, The Goon Show with Peter Sellers, and, Monty Python and that kind of stuff. And, um, and some of the early Saturday Night Live, I mean, those, those were absurd situations, but they bore enough of a resemblance to reality that that's where the comedy lay. I'm, I'm not much of a theorist. You have to ask Mike Myers. He's, he has so many theories about comedy mm-hmm. and yeah.
0: So he's your BFF. Tell me about how he and you, I'm guessing, came up with uh, Wayne's World or Wayne, the character of Wayne in City
1: Limits. What's the real story? Well, it's entirely Mike's character. I had nothing to do with it. Um, He and I were in the Second City Touring Company at the same time and we used to do scenes that Wayne would appear in. And um, so he was kind of working on Wayne. But as he told me that the reason that he developed the Wayne character was to make girls laugh at parties. That was entirely... (laughs) (laughs) so um and i think it succeeded uh from what i can tell um lots of girls laughed at parties um and then when i when i did the all night show mike came down and because we've been having so much fun together in the touring company i said oh you got to come and do this all night video show with me and we came up with this idea that he would be my cousin as the reason why I would put up with him just sort of barreling into the show and interrupting everything. And I mean, I remember, you know, there'd be like a guitar player being interviewed and Wayne would just all of a sudden burst into the scene and go, I love that guitar part, man. Show me how you do that, diddle, diddle, diddle thing. And, he, and, the, and the guy would be uh, okay. <laughs> like sort of caught between absurdity and reality and forced to kind of conform to whatever the tightrope is between the two. And, you know, would teach him the guitar part. He's like, all right. Pretty on, man, you know? And it was just, you know, I mean, he's one of the funniest people on the planet. I mean, and and just like having improvised with him, I mean, I, I was not an improviser compared to him. It'd be like me sitting beside Eric Clapton playing guitar, you know, going, yeah, well, I'm a guitar player too. Yeah, but, but not really, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Did you have any idea that that
0: character Wayne would become so um, such a uh, you know uh, representative of of Canada, sort of. You know, he kind of represented Scarborough basements um, for the whole world. And <laughs> did you know that he would that
1: this would be something big? Well, no, you never really know that for sure. I mean, I I certainly had a lot of faith in Mike. I mean, he's an exceptionally talented individual, so it's no surprise to me. I, I have to say that he, but he's also. He's unbelievably hardworking. Mm. Like I was hanging around with him when he was doing, you know, research for um, the Austin Powers movies, and you know, he was watching like all of these shows. You know, the I'm trying to remember the names of the what was the one with the to the man and the woman in it, the Avengers. Like watching all these shows and making notes, and then and just jamming things out. And I mean, he, he's or we we did some gigs actually in clubs. We played the Viper Room the band that was in the Austin Powers movies. And, uh, and he would start, you know, improvising sort of off the audience, but he would be gathering material at the same time while he did that. Incredibly disciplined, um, just a tireless writer and rewriter and has incredibly high standards, which I know drives some people nuts, but that's the way it always is. You know, the people that are the most demanding um, get the best results pretty much, I would say.
0: Speaking um, of which, you were in the studio while you were working at Much Music, with very high standards, writing Alana Miles' album and producing it. Tell me about that time, because you and I were sitting across from each other at, in our our desks, were facing each other. And yes. you would come in with a big smile on your face you had just come from the studio and you were really excited about what you were doing. So tell me about that time working full-time at Much and working on this
1: album. It took you a long time. Well, I had been developing Alana's career for a number of years. We'd been boyfriend and girlfriend for a long time. As it happens, we broke up during the making of the record, just to add a little, little twist of fate in there. Um, but we were friends, so we maintained the friendship. And, and we, I think she, I'm sure would agree, uh, we retained the most important part of our relationship and that is the creative one. And um, so, you know, I finally got her a deal with Atlantic Records in 1987. So it was like the last couple of years that I was at Much. And yeah, it, it, it was a lot of work, a lot of demos, a lot of people said no, the classic story, right? And then finally we got her a record deal. And then we found <clears throat> sort of the perfect third partner in Dave Tyson, who became her producer and, and who co-wrote a lot of the songs. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, I, I, I wondered what I looked like. I would wonder what you saw from your chair in those days, if I just looked completely whipped because I was exhausted. You know, in the studio every night writing and trying to create songs and you know, then recording them and all of that and trying to handle the business end of her career as well while I was on Much. So it was stressful, but in a good way. It was like, you know, my, my marathon. <laughs> when that
0: album came out, it exploded. And that would be an understatement, especially Black Velvet. Is that why you left Much? Because we were all very sad when you said you were going to go. Or did you get fired by Moses? How dare you have a successful album when you should be working only for me?
1: Um, I left because we had a hit record. Um, Now, the odd thing is that Black Velvet was not the first single on that record. A song called Love Is was. And there there was actually a moment in time, which I can describe precisely, when I knew that we had a hit record and I knew that it'd be okay for me to leave. And it was in the spring of 89 when Love Is was the first single. And I just came out of an editing booth at about two in the morning from working all night doing stuff. And I was standing on the corner of Queen and John and bars were just getting out. And this drunk was rolling down the street singing at the top of his lungs. And as he got closer to me, I realized he was singing Love Is. And it was just like, Kapow, you know, that was that moment I just went, okay, now strangers know our music they, they're, and they're singing them on the street when they're drunk. That's, that's a good thing, isn't it, you know? And, um, and then when Black Velvet came out, um, particularly when it started to take off in the States, I knew it's like the door to opportunity opened. And I had, I had the two choices you always have, which is you go rushing through that door, not knowing how long it's gonna stay open. Or you don't go through it and you stay behind and you pursue whatever you want to pursue. So when, when that happened, I I, I, uh, I asked John and Nancy to come with me to the, you know, John's second office down the street. And I said, OK, stop paying me. They <laughs> went, OK. So that was it. And they wanted to have, you know, the big on air goodbye thing. And I said, no, so I'm not doing it. We did it for JD and it took us a while to recover from it. And it just, it seemed backward looking. And I said, no, I'm just, I'm just not gonna show up anymore. And that's what happened. I never, I just didn't come back. And I know that may seem like a coward's way out, but it just seemed like the right thing to do. It felt like the right thing to do for me at the time. And I mean, I used to come back and host the cheese show every year. So, you know, I maintain my deep, much, much connections. So I have another question from a listener.
0: Uh, Jack the Garbage Man asked, so how did life... (laughs) It's true. How did life change after Black Velvet?
1: Well, I got a whole lot of respect as a songwriter that I'd never gotten before. Um, But it was also just one of those iconic songs that people took note of and there were opportunities that came to me and I signed a big publishing deal and you know they put me together with all these different artists and stuff because it's like when you write a song that's that well known it's people treat you like you've figured that out like you've got the keys to the kingdom right which you don't you just wrote a song and it happened to be a hit and there's an awful lot of things that have to go right for a hit song to happen you know it has to be the right artist. it has to be the right song it has to be the right production. you've got to have the right management. The label has to be excited about it it's like the radio- there has to be a spot on radio for that song and it has to grow naturally it's like you know some like a viral entity today and um you know we were lucky it all it all locked into place for us on that on that particular song so um yeah, life just got different and um, it kind of hasn't gone back.
0: <laughs> I have to be honest, and I, I might have mentioned to the mentioned this to you when you were interviewing me for your book, that when I left Much, I resented people who only wanted to talk to me about that being that girl on Much Music because it was frustrating because I felt like, God, I'm I do more than just that. I am more than that girl who's on TV. I kind of wanted to wipe, and I tried to wipe Much Music from my resume for years, and here I am doing this podcast years later. But did you experience that? Was Much Music a point of pride for you? Or did you also try and play it down?
1: Um I was always proud of the time that I spent at Much Music. But remember, much didn't define me, like in the public eye. I, at least I don't think so, because um, I'd already been a recording artist. I'd been signed to Warner Brothers. I'd had a band and I toured. You know, I'd worked with Second City. I had a lot of experience as an entertainer before much. So I think I was more fully formed as a, an entertainer, if you like. So that gives you a certain point of you know security from which to launch your career. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when Black Velvet happened, it was just so big all at once that it kind of pushed, you know, my accomplishments at much to the side in some ways. Christopher. And it was, it, people treated it like, you know, former VJ, now songwriter. It's like as if the day I left much, I picked up a guitar, right? <laughs> you know? Oh, okay.
0: You're an overnight success, which took 35 years. <laughs> I had no idea that you wrote songs with Steven Stone. Stephen Stone being the executive producer of Degrassi. You wrote with him way before. Tell me about that. I didn't even know that he was a songwriter. I thought he was a lawyer.
1: Um, he's a lawyer. He's a songwriter. Um, yeah. He's a lot of things. Uh, he's an exceptionally talented, brilliant man. And then my oldest friend. Um, yeah, well, when Stephen and I were in college together, we started writing songs at Trent University, and then, um, you know, we did the thing of two long hairs with guitars in a VW bus, traveling all over all over Europe for about a year, and we wrote a lot of songs. And it was really kind of like going to school for me because you know he'd he'd already been writing songs um, with bands when he was in high school, so he kind of had a leg up on this thing. So yeah.
0: That's so cool. One of the things that's like in my research, I found that out and I was like, what? Um, <laughs> and now here you are writing, or you've written another album. And your last one was like in 1987
1: or something for you. <laughs> what are you doing? It's a few years ago, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Erica, I I can't explain the, the creative impulses that I have but I do know enough at this point in my life to just follow them and not ask why and early part of last year I started writing songs because normally I would sort of bank song ideas and use them in collaboration with artists and you know other situations but in this case I started writing songs and I went nobody's going to record this so I just would start finishing the songs and then move on to another one. And I realized that I was creating work that was really in my own voice for the first time in decades because I'd been working for so long in the service of helping others find their voice, tell their story, develop their careers. And it was, uh, it was an amazing feeling. And so I was talking to a friend of mine named Aaron Chaturvedi, who's an exceptionally talented um, writer-producer and he's, he's like, yeah, what are you doing these days? And I'm like, well, Aaron, I think I want to write, I want to make an album. And I sort of expected that, <clears throat> really, you know? <laughs> and, he, and he went, I love it, what can I do? So I'm, immediately I conscripted him and then we built outwards from there. We brought in Luke McMaster, who's a partner of Aaron's and who I've been writing songs with forever. And the three of us talked about how we're going to make this record. And then, you know, COVID happened in March but we kept the idea alive and I kept writing and I just had this creative outburst, this outpouring of songs such as I hadn't had I can't even remember the last time, probably like the nineteen eighties around the time of writing for Atlanta, when the songs just flowed out of me and I had to kind of race to the to the notebook and you know, to the guitar every day to get them out, get them down. Um I don't know. What, I have no idea what anybody's going to think about it. I got to tell you, it's, it's a, but I didn't care. I had to do it. I had to do this work and uh, I'm really proud of, of what we've done.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can't write something or not write something because someone may not like it. I mean, we yeah. learned that on much, didn't we? It's like, you just have to do what you do and hopefully people will get you.
1: Yeah. I I just don't have any idea how this will be received, you know? Is there a Juno for the least anticipated album of the year? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Okay, so you have had so many successes in your life and so many achievements. So I haven't even mentioned you have two novels that you wrote, you have a podcast that that you've been doing for several years now with iHeartRadio called Famous Lost Words. Has... How has your definition of success evolved over the years? It's almost like as you have a success that you sort of, the, the goalpost moves ahead a few steps in a way.
1: Well, I have to kind of view it from one framework or another. So let's choose songwriting. For so many years, I mean, I did not get recognition for the work I did as a songwriter. So in order to fortify myself, I had to treat each song as its own accomplishment. And if I wrote that song to the furthest point I could take it to the best of my abilities, and I was proud of it when I was done, that was success. That was the meaning of success. And then when Alana came along, you know, she came at a time when I'd gone a long time without doing any recording or anything of my own. I hadn't had a band for a while. And she was like my biggest champion. She would literally, every single day, I swear to God, Erica, she would say to me, you're gonna write me a hit song. I know it. And that sounded a little bit like a threat. I didn't mean it to sound like that, but it was just more, okay okay, I got this. Uh, yeah, I'm, I got this. And I go back to the guitar. And every time I came up with something, it could be some little fragment. It could be something that I'd done two years earlier. She'd go, hey, remember that little bit you did that went uh, like this? I'm like, no. She says, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. go back to your notes. And she, it's like she had this ability to pluck out the very best of what I did and make sure that I stayed on the path with it. So then as we built her career and her sound and everything else with those songs as the foundation, that was a different kind of success because I knew that what we were doing was good. And that's why I stayed at it for as long. I mean, it took us like seven years to get her a record deal, but we stayed at it for that length of time, you know? Seven and, years. Um, yeah. So I know about waiting and I know about letting things kind of um, bubble under and percolate for a while before they take form. And it's the same now. It's like, I mean, my record hasn't come out yet, this new one but it's already a success to me. Why? Because I did what I wanted to do. I, I said what I wanted to say and I did it in the, I think the most eloquent terms that I am capable of.
0: Okay, I'm
1: gonna turn the tables.
0: We all, yeah. every single person who I talked to in this, in our sort of gang of people who worked at much, have had our fair share of disappointments or failures, call them whatever you want. Uh, you could tell me what some of yours have been or you don't have to, but what I want to know more, most importantly is, how do you deal with it?
1: Hmm. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> Yes. Although I suppose I did that with Alana. I mean, when I was at Much, I literally took everything that I made at Much and poured it into her career. And so I guess I, I have to take those words back and, and, also, and change my answer.
0: That was not a failure. So No, it, it,
1: it wasn't, but 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 at the time I'm I'm talking about the principle of putting everything in one basket. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like for example, I was working with Diana Ross in what should have been just an unbelievable opportunity. Um, Her business manager was my business manager at the time. And he just one day called me up and said, "'Hey, do you want to meet Diana?' I'm like, "'Ross?' I'm like, "'Yeah.'" (laughs) So, and I knew who we met, right? And um, so he said, well, I'm gonna put it together. So like that day I was at the gym and my then wife (laughs) called me up at the gym and went, um, Diana Ross just called. I'm like, what? So and I had to go over to her place. And um, you want to hear this story? This is pretty wacky. Of course um, I do. Okay, okay, so um I get there and I'm thinking there's gonna be this coterie of you know handlers and followers and guards and you know all this stuff. There's nobody, there's just a gardener, right? <laughs> he opens the door and she's up on the next level, and she leans over and she goes, Hi, come on up, you know. So I'm like, okay. And at the door, you know, she's got three little backpacks that she prepared for her children then to, you know, because they were going to camp that day. Like it was just not what I thought. I I was expecting the diva of all time, right? And that wasn't it. And so, you know, I sat down and I was, you know, having this really nice conversation with her. And she was talking about what she wanted to do and the music that she was loving and, you know, all all the things you kind of do to kind of sort where that artist is gonna go next. And then she said, oh, do you have anything to play for me? I'm like, oh yeah, sure. So I brought a couple songs along. She says, oh, well, maybe you could just go and pop it in the player over there. <laughs> Look, and there's this wall of equipment, right? <laughs> and I am not technologically inclined, right? So I'm like starting to sweat. So I get over there. And I'm like, just looking at all these things, trying to figure out where to put this disc. And, you know, she's sort of chirping away in the background at me. And so finally, I'm like, I think I found the machine. that's like the mother machine where all the sound is going to come from. And I'm down on my knees and I get the disc in, but then there's no sound. There's no audio happening and the song's playing. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> you know, this is not happening. And so I'm pushing every button in sight. And next thing you know, she's on her knees beside me, right? And she's pushing all the buttons that I'm pushing. And and she's got, she, you know, she was in her sweats and stuff, but she still had the do, the Ross do was happening, right? Like full on. And it was pressed into the side of my head because she, she was like leaning down with me, look at this gear. And I had one of those moments where you'd leave your body and you just, you go up above your body and you look down and go, okay, there I am. I'm on my knees in Diana Ross's house, trying to get her stereo to work. And that's the the Ross Dew pressing into the side of my head. <laughs> and I thought, okay, okay, get a hold of yourself. Get a hold of yourself. And I finally got the thing to work. I played her the songs. And she loved them. So I was so relieved and she wanted to write songs together. So we started working together and we wrote like five songs together. And you know, she was really excited about making this album. And um Motown were going to give her this huge budget. It was going to be her comeback record and all of this. And it was like, you know, for me, it was the thrill of working with one of the voices of my childhood and with somebody I just respect so hugely. And, you know, the opportunity was just magnificent, you know, mansion on the hill type of stuff, right? And then right at the end, right before the record came out, she just totally changed streams and then started in on a, a, a Supremes reunion thing, which eventually became this massive tour. But then that didn't go well for her either because they charged too much money, and she didn't hire some of the original Supremes. And anyway, that's another story. But as a result, you know, Motown then lost interest because she lost interest, and the whole thing just—I just watched it kind of go up in smoke. And it was just like, how do you deal with it in those
0: shittier times? Well.
1: I got some great stories out of it. Certainly do, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that's that's all you can ask. Sure. Okay. Seriously.
0: Last question. (laughs) Yeah. You you have uh, done a lot. You've uh, when I say done a lot, you've created a lot. You've experienced a lot. You've been in many interesting places. Um, You are having quite, uh, 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 what's the word? A life that many would like to
1: emulate. What are you most proud of? I think I'm proud of the fact that I'm able to be creative every day. It's a mantra for me. It's a mission statement, whatever you want to call it. Um, And I've stuck to it and i just try to do something original however small every day you know whether i'm just messing around and processing photographs or whether i'm writing poems or whether i'm working on a guitar riff or just anything at all um just to try to create something that wasn't there yesterday something different something new maybe it'll be usable maybe it won't it kind of doesn't matter um So that's, I think that's the answer.
0: I get that. I relate to that big time. I love making Mm -hmm. something from nothing. And I don't, and they're different than what you make, but it's the art of creating that really lights me up for sure. Christopher, a lot of people, or actually one person, Mike in Oakville, he asked, who is going to interview you, Erica, for this podcast series? And I was like, no one because it's my show and I don't need to be interviewed. But then I thought it would be fun to ask each person who I'm interviewing, who obviously is a professional uh, in the the business, to ask me just one question. So is there a burning question, Christopher Ward, that you would like to know, or that you think the listeners might
1: want to know about me? I was interested and almost saddened a little bit when you said earlier in our interview that as you left much, you wanted to obliterate that from your resume. Mm. You had your reasons, and I understand what they are, but I'm wondering with hindsight, what's the most important thing that you took away Mm. from that gig?
0: Well, I think it is that I'm a superwoman, that I am able to (laughs) to go through the fire and survive. And that I'm capable of more than I ever thought and that I am able to parlay many things into many more opportunities. And also that I asked amazing feminist questions to so many people. I was the same then as I am now. And it showed up when I look back at a lot of my interviews I pat myself on the back and I go, good girl, you asked the right questions. Mm. Nice. there you go, yeah. Thank nice. you, Christopher. How nice, thank you so much for answering all my questions and uh, sharing all your stories with me. So I got, I got to know you just that much more. And for those of you who are um, still listening to our conversation, number one, if you haven't picked up Christopher's book, which came out, I think, in 2016. Is this live? Yes. It mm-hmm. is the. It is such a fantastic read. Um, it really takes you on the, the journey of um, the evolution of much music from so many different perspectives. And you wrote it with such tenderness. Uh, I don't know if the readers or listeners will weep, but certainly made me cry. <laughs> and your podcast is on iHeart Radio.
1: And your album is coming out when? We don't have a release date. I literally just finished it, Um, but I would say in the early spring.
0: One of the things that, um, that you mentioned when I talked about, you spoke about earlier also, was that all of us who worked at Much Music failed publicly over and over again because we were on Much Music live TV making mistakes and people forgave us. And I hope that, for those people who are listening, if you make a mistake to just own it, have a laugh and move on. So thanks again, Christopher. For those of you who are listening and want to participate in the show, we actually set up a phone line where you can call in and leave a message. The number is 833-972-7272. I'll give you that number again. And you can call in and you could maybe share an anecdote that you remember from Much Music. If there's somebody that was on the air much that you would like to see me interview, you could definitely suggest someone. If you have questions that you would like me to ask anyone who has been on the air much or and feedback on this show. Are you liking it? Are you not liking it? What could I do to improve? Here's the number again, 833-972-7272. Thanks again to Christopher Ward for such a great conversation. And I hopefully will see you all next week with another episode of Reinvention of the VJ. Here's to living a life filled with music, meaning, and many reinventions.
1: Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com. Podcast produced in collaboration with Steve Anthony Productions. Editing and coordination of Flaulow Communications Inc., Copyright 2020. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is you don't need any vacation time for this adventure